Yes, Honest Actors is back with brand new episodes every Friday. To help me continue releasing new episodes without a sponsor, or to say thanks for your favourite old ones, click the support link in the episode description. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It's a one-off, feeling generous, good deed for the day sort of thing. Think of it as bumping into me and buying me a drink. To find out more, click the support link. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, mine's a large red. I hate those guys. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Joanna Scanlon, and you're listening to the Honest Actors Podcast. Hello there. My name is Jonathan Harden and you're listening to episode three of series three of the Honest Actors podcast. Before I let you hear the interview, though, as is always the case, I'm going to ask for something from you. Please share your favorite bits of the podcast on Twitter with the hashtag Best of Honest Actors. Yes, I'm still flogging that one. You can follow the podcast, obviously, at Honest Actors. And uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating or a review, if you haven't done that so far, please do consider doing it but only if you're gonna give me five stars otherwise just you know keep your opinions to yourself as my mum always says if you can't say something nice go fuck yourself if you want great offers on theatre tickets access today seats on your mobile and exclusive front row lotteries you need today ticks the ticketing app that lets you see theatre differently to get tickets with no cues and no fuss download today ticks now from the app store and google play seamless so, uh, episode three is with the wonderful Joanna Scanlon, which I recorded in August of this year. There's so much in here that I could pick out tons of stuff uh, nearly as long as the interview by the time I finish saying the bits that I like about this interview. Joanna talks uh, about feeling like she was wearing the wrong trousers at one point in her life and is incredibly honest about that period. I very much enjoyed talking to Joanna about the importance of being available, the talent to have the talent, and uh, there is also some wonderful finger-scissor work. I like to think from both of this, but certainly from Joanna, who's a a veteran of the finger-scissors. Any hoops, here it is, episode three, with Joanna Scanlon. Enjoy. So, um, first things first, uh, I guess, is to say thanks for doing the interview. Thanks for asking. Uh, you might not say that in a little while. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> so this is very simple. As a way of warming into it, uh, the question I ask everybody is, uh, how did you get into acting first? Oh, that's such a long... I mean, it's not a simple, not a simple question and not a short answer. Um, when you say, how did I get into acting, does, th- does that mean, how did I first, you know, inhabit another... Are you, que- are you questioning the question? I'm questioning if, the question. Because if you are, this is going to be a very <laughs> long interview. Um, so the question is, is profes- I guess... Are we asking no, professional no, I mean, how did you, Joanna, as a young person, be at age five or age 15, go from being someone who didn't act to someone who did? I went to a 
convent school um, when I was four. Mm-hmm. Um, and that convent school was run by um, uh, an Irish order called the, the Bridgedine Order. And it was in North Wales, which is where I grew up. And they were showbiz mad. These That's nuns. not where I thought that particular sentence was going to end. Showbiz mad nuns. They were showbiz mad nuns. I mean, I'm not joking. Um, and they... Sounds like the diocese didn't know. <laughs> it sounds like they were a little law to themselves. That's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it was Sister Act before Sister Act. I right, mean, okay. really, it genuinely was. And um, there are two things I did there. The first moment I remember feeling kind of transported was actually reciting a poem in front of a, a very, it must have been a very small little audience. I had to learn a poem, recite it, and, you know, um, just stand there in front of a, a handful of people. And the poem was, I think it was called The Moon or something by Walter Delamere, and I, I was probably around four or five. And the sensation as I recited this these words, which I probably didn't really understand, um, of being transported to an other reality. Just I just thought, oh, I prefer this one. I don't really I prefer being in this space, this made up space. And that is still the case. That is still the truth for me about why I, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it and get paid for it. But if I wasn't being paid for it, I'd still do it. And I wouldn't be doing it for any other reason than I prefer that reality. So is there in that young child's mind a differentiation between reciting a poem and playing a role or both the same thing that, well, at that stage? I think they, they, there's a similarity in the experience, in the, the sort of sensory experience of it for me. Um, obviously, I'm applying lots of thoughts to a character, but the sense of otherness or altered stateness is remains pretty similar, I think. And the other thing I was going to say about the convent is that they would put on a, a an annual pantomime at Christmas, which was a fairly kind of major number. Academic study, as I remember, was suspended for the whole term. This is brilliant. This is, this is a film script. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there's a film script in this North Walian yeah. uh, you know, in the 1960s <laughs> as well. It's brilliant. Do you know, I think in this, in this room somewhere I might have a photograph because a girl from my school sent me a brilliant publicity photograph from the school in those days. Brilliant. It was a, cra- you know, there was a lot, it was a pretty crazy school. I mean, in this photograph, which if I can find it, I'll show you, there's a picture of us in a classroom with a nun and one of us has got a dog on our knee. And he's like, what? Where's a dog? We're dog in the classroom. I Brilliant. mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Anyway, the, the, this, this pantomime was a massive, massive deal. And we would have lo- uh, teachers come from London, a dance teacher and a singing teacher. Elocution probably was her <laughs> overall title. Um, to come from London to North Wales, getting off the train at Rill and coming across to Denby um, every Tuesday. I mean, this is in the 60s. It wasn't like fast trains or anything. Um, and we, so we'd have this sort of professional input from London. These two incredibly elegant London people who spoke beautifully arrived and they gave us a lesson. And, and it's fair to say, are these the only London creative people in your experience? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Completely. Right, I mean, yeah. they were creatures from another planet. They yeah. were aliens landing. And they seemed alluring and confident. You know, I think I've had great role models of women 
in my life. I've had them from the nuns. I, I, I'm lucky enough to say, and this is, I know I'm in the minority, that I've never had a bad experience of a nun uh, or with a nun. Um, but what I had instead were firstly with the Irish nuns and secondly with a, a, the posh English nuns in the second convent I went to, women who were very um, self, self-determined, self-reliant. Men didn't feature in their lives. They had other passions and interests, you know, whether it was, was theatre, whether it was, um, you know, literature or whatever. And I really, you know, drank them in. I just drank in what they were and what they represented. So in these pantomimes, of course, I was at this school for several years. Um, gradually, you know, the first year I was in the chorus and I played a panda. And then I grew to being, you know, featured and did a big song and a dance routine and what so on. What was the panda man? Oh, there were very many of them. But what, was the first, what was the first one in which you Do had you know, a featured? I don't know. I've got the picture of me as the panda because and that, that dates it... it to the year of, I think, 1968 when when that was the year when the panda was given by the Republic of China to London Zoo. So to, very, to these were reflecting on, on contemporary issues. Which is traditional in a pantomime. Of course. That they, you know, whatever the big themes of the year come out in that pantomime. And it's given me a great, great love of pantomime itself. Um, mm-hmm. Then I went to another school, the second convent, which was a posher school in England. And then I had to, unfortunately, it was so badly behaved at that school. I was truly atrocious that um, I was removed from that school uh, uh, involuntarily. And um, Removed involuntarily is a lovely, lovely way of describing what I can only imagine. <laughs> it's a, catast- a catastrophic a series a of colourful events. story, yeah. Yeah, I think the final straw was me flicking ink at, the, to the on the back of the music teacher's very beautiful pink blouse, deliberately and very vocally for a laugh. Um, anyway, apologies. Um, amends must be made. Um, and I went then to Protestant school for the first time as punishment. <laughs> well, uh, you know, to my mother's absolute, uh, you know, total uh, upset. I mean, she yeah. she totally believed in Catholic education, and she couldn't couldn't understand how she was forced into a position of putting me into a church in Wales school. But I, so I went back to the, into the Welsh system and there, so that school was... Were you seen as, I mean, it, it, just as an, as an aside, you go to a school in England, are you identifiably Welsh? Do you sound more Welsh than you do now? Or have you got that North Wellian thing of not sounding... I, um, well, firstly, my parents, although they were, one was one was Irish, one side's Irish, the other side was Welsh, but both of them had ended up in Liverpool. Okay. So by one generation. So we were going back to Wales. Okay. So they had English accents because they were both brought up, though, via Welsh and Irish ancestry in Liverpool. So you fitted in fairly, you were, you fitted in fairly well in the English common school and in the Welsh yeah. Protestant school. But I think the question, I think that's a, a very good an, an important word, fitting in, mm-hmm. because I think the facility that I always had was to fit in to many different classes, many different echelons. And I just obviously had a, a, a it's almost an ability to of mimicry, really. Yeah. And I could just I could mirror back to people what whatever they needed to feel to feel safe in my company. Were and, you aware of doing that at the time? 
Or is it something as you look back no, on? No, I, I saw it much later. I saw when it was really when I'd after I'd had many years of a career, you know, um, in you know as a teacher, as a lecturer, and then I worked at the Arts Council and I did various other things before before even starting acting, professional acting, I mean. Um, and at that point, I thought, how did I get away with this all these years doing these jobs? You know, mm. fairly senior level, and I thought I acted it. I acted my way through that. It's just, it was an innate kind of ability to observe and to replicate and push it back, mirror it back. Do you think everybody does that to a degree? And and I guess the question is like, because what what it feels like is that you had a particular aptitude at that that enabled you to do that better than most people, or certainly better than most non actors to the kind of absorb what was going on around you and, as you say, reflect it back, just fit in get on with it. Nobody will notice that you're not one of them until you need to kind of change masks for the next particular context. Do you think that's something everybody does? We all find our strategies for survival, don't we? And I think my strategy for survival was always to keep my antennae really, really sharp and polished uh, to see what's going on around, observe it, and then modify my behaviour in order to survive within that. And that is, I think there are, I don't know, if, I mean, it's a, a ridiculous tru- generalisation or truism to say that, you know, there are different two kinds of actors. But in a way, I think there are. There are those who are focused on observing and repeating. And there are those who go from the inside, go, you know, turn their, turn their attentions on themselves and then take that out push that out to the world and I think I'm more in the observing category so there's there's so much here that's interesting and I'm not going to dwell on it too long but I think there's something in that being the girl who flicks ink which is not about fitting in it's about being in some way the centre of attention at least for fun rather than for kind of adulation or you know adoration and then also being the person who very much is expert at fitting in. Those are two kind of contradictory push-pull scenarios. So um, as a kid, did you like the attention of being on stage? Well, I, um, you know, the reason I, I was fitting in with my peers to flick the ink in the, and, and sacrificing fitting in with the, with the grown-ups and the adults. Okay. And I've always had a rebellious kind of issue with authority, which, again, a lot of us shared with a lot of actors. <laughs> um... Being on stage and the attention of being on stage, um, well, to be really honest, it's not so much the attention of being on stage that I like as the construct around us as we're in that business of performing and being and being observed performing or or that shared space that you get in the in in performance with your audience, whoever it may be, including a camera, I think is can be, yeah. can be equivalent. Um, and in that, what I like, the, it suddenly feels extremely comfortable to me. The world feels really comfortable to me in a way that the rest of the time it doesn't. And whether that's because we're in a world of rules that, you know, you just you, there are expectations about what's going to happen now. People will be quiet or people will, you know, um, uh, keep keep their their role everybody's role is clear to them and they will play it for that period of time agreed period of time whether it's that or whether it's just the magic of make-believe that is 
that goes on between us all. There's something comforting about there being a script as well. I think there's something comforting about when you convince yourself to a certain degree that this fictitious setup is partly real and real enough to, to play within and to live within that actually there's a limit on the amount of choices you can make. There's yeah. a limit on there's a limit on the amount of pressures on whatever character you're playing, and it's always going to end out end up the way it ends up. Um, you think there's a comfort in that kind of knowing what's going to where it all ends that that is partly attractive whenever you compare it to day to day life where you know you've got to decide for real what's going to happen tomorrow and you've got to decide for real whether or not you're going to buy this or whether you're going to what are you going to have for breakfast and all these actual choices do you think it, part of it is being on a train that has a predetermined destination and within that you can you know run amok but actually you always know where you're going to end up i mean i think it's about partly about consequences isn't it that the, you know if you're if you're going to make a choice in real life you are afeard of the consequences of that choice but in in the choices you're making in performance you cannot but be in that moment doing that thing as you say it's it's established so you're going to just continue on till the end of the scene the end of the play the end of the whatever um but there are within that at least two or three realities mm -hmm. They're not just the one realities. There's the script, the thing we're following, but there's also the stuff that's happening in that moment with the fellow yep. actors and, and possibly with other things that are happening uh, with the crew or audience or whatever. And for me, the absolute deliciousness is that experience going on with fellow actors in, in those moments. And there is really nothing to me more exciting or enjoyable than the play that happens between us on in a set and you know I've had actors I've worked with who I don't even like and they don't like me but in the scene we've got something going on that you know is is almost you know almost as good as sex in terms of deep connection yeah and there's some kind of respect that happens and you walk away and think, I'm not going to speak to that fucker again. But that we went good. through something together yeah. and we went through it in a way that nothing nothing else can replicate. So to get to that point of you working with other people where you're getting something back, that's fair to say that's not necessarily what's happening in a pantomime aged seven years old. Oh, I don't so, know. <laughs> so, so certainly not with everyone I work with at that age. Um, but... Just thinking in terms of when the transition comes from you being someone who really enjoys, you know, reciting poetry, being in the pantomime once a year and the lead up to that and all the kind of rehearsal and the people coming from London and whatever else is entailed. How does that come to you, come to uh, you being a person who says, I am an actor or I want to be an actor or realising that it is a profession? that you can take seriously and invest in and and give everything else up in favour of? Well, what's that process or what is the kind of thing that precipitates that? I think, oh gosh, it's, uh, I went through such a sort of convoluted route, but I went to university. So university became like a mind-expanding, as it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, experience. Less technical. I didn't really learn so much technically, but I learned about what the, what's the point so of all this So this is formal then? study of theatre, or is it drama, <clears throat> drama kind of society? Drama society. Right. I went to Cambridge University, 
specifically because, well, in fact, no other university would have me. I did apply for five other universities. Well, I've applied for five in total. Four of them said no. And they were English and drama courses I was trying to get on. But Cambridge said yes. And the reason I went to Cambridge, even though they don't have a drama academics, an academic drama study, was because I didn't really know anything about anything. But my mum was aware that, you know, that Monty Python had been at Cambridge. For lights. And that some, for lights. Yeah. There, was, there, was, there was some kind of, as innocent as that sort of idea, mm-hmm. oh, well, they went there and they, so it's equivalent to some kind of drama school. So I ended up there as opposed to anywhere else. And, um, and that was, you know, it was a time of, so, it was big socialist theatre, Marxist, Marxist thinking in general across all the different departments. I read history, a um, lot of Marxist history, lots of other kinds of, um, yeah, interesting crossover work within my history degree. And, and the rest of the time, I just did plays, play after play after play after play after play. Of all, all Always kinds. acting or did you try to direct or write or? No, only ever acting was only ever really interested in acting at that point. Um, and I, you know, just got, I suppose, you know, it's just a flying, flying house, isn't it? But it was really, for me, the question asked and answered up to a point at university was, what? so what's the point of all this then? So why do it? What's, aside from it, you, you enjoy it, and aside from you, it feels nice. Mm. And why? What, 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 to what end will this be put um, and it gave me a kind of the, a proper social conscience, I think, working through, I mean, bizarrely, in the most privileged environment. But it, it gave me this sense that, right, you've got to do something with it. You've got to talk about something important at the same, or to, important to you, or but at the same time with some humility. Because if you're just saying, oh, I believe that this is the most important thing in the world, well, who am I to say that it's the most important thing in the world? So it was kind of trying to find that balance. Then I left university and my boyfriend and I at the time had a theatre company. We were modelling ourselves, or at least I was, modelling myself on the company um, that Frank Arame and and Dario Fo had had in Italy, where we were sort of, you know, going off to to villages to put on Marxist theatre. And we... we, There was a lot of that about yeah, there, yeah. There, there was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very real thing, and, mm-hmm. and in South America as well, and in lots of places. And it was that's how I thought oh, my life was going to go. And then very quickly, we, we took a play to Edinburgh, we won a fringe first with it, and on the back of that, we thought, he was writing, I was directing. We thought, why well, let's tour this around, uh, you know, forever and ever and ever. And, you know, within like about five or six months of this tour, um, he left me for somebody else. <laughs> He meant somebody else. And my world just collapsed because I thought, I I did think you you went to Cambridge, because I'd read a lot of 60s literature, really, uh, that was written in the 70s, but about the 60s, uh, where women had gone to Cambridge University, met the person that they're going to love for the rest of their lives, be married to. And um, and that was that done, done deal. So I I was utterly, like, shocked. I was, I'd been through... Fairly privileged private education, fairly privileged private, um, uh, a privileged university, um, living in a bit of a bubble. Suddenly, my parents also lost their all their uh, money at that point, so they had nothing. So I was no boyfriend, no future, uh, living in a council flat in southeast London, with like having fallen off the edge of a reef into that deep blue and not knowing what was going to 
do, what I should do. So I started working as an amateur, an amateur environment as the in the Rother High Theatre Workshop, which was run by Dartington College of Arts as a third year placement for to to sort of do community theatre, um, as it was you know the idea of community theatre that had grown up during the nineteen seventies, which was. You know, this was the purpose of theatre was to to work with the people in some way. I was on obviously the community side because I wasn't on the Dartington side because I was a local. But I ended up, but of course I had much more of the Dartington side of education. So I ended up directing and working, directing a pantomime, Christmas pantomime, um, working in lots of lots of kind of disability groups, all sorts of different things. A lot of dance theatre. I opened up into the more avant-garde kind of work instead of just the classical tradition, which really had been all I'd known that much about up to that point. And from that, I ended up, I wrote, to, I did write, I did try to be a professional actor. So, so, so how, long are you out of, how long are you out of Cambridge? I was going to ask you. So you're in your early 20s, out of Cambridge a couple of years? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think we toured that show for about a year, so a year and a half. So about, so I was maybe, I'm looking at age 23, 24. Okay. Um, I was working at Dartington, uh, well, at Rother High Theatre Workshop. Loved South East London. Found it, you know, really found it a, an amazing place. Um, and it took me into that kind of teaching mode. I wrote to lots of agents and said, "Please can didn't, I be an didn't actress? we all? Please can I be an actress? <laughs> yeah, um, give me permission. <laughs> yeah. Of course, at that time you still needed an equity card and things. So I, yeah. I didn't. I couldn't do. I couldn't apply for professional jobs. Um, and I just got flat nose back. And even even though I kept thinking, oh, well, maybe I'd, I'd be all right, because I'd won an award at the National Student Drama Festival of Best Actress for that year. I can't remember what year it would have, would have been, 83. And the Fringe First as well. Oh, and the Fringe First. You've got a little oh, yeah, collection yeah, yeah. Of this, for this age. That's the two, um, two biggies. I'd had some other awards from at the end of school as well. All right, stop blowing your own trumpet. Come so, on. No, but this is, my point being, these bloody awards don't get you anywhere. They yeah. didn't do a thing. You know, my National Student Drama Festival Best Actress, all it got back from the agents was, um, no, thank you. <laughs> no, just, yeah, not even addressed, no, not even referenced. Buy tickets to the best theatre in London the new way. With the Today Ticks app, getting great offers and access to exclusive tickets has never been easier. With Today Ticks Rush, you won't have to queue at the box office for hours to get day seats like some numpty. You can access big savings with their lotteries too. Huh? Am I right? Let's see if I am. Going to have a little look at their app here. What's what's hot now, Today Ticks? Let me just see my filters. I'm going to look for a... Uh, Christmas show, yeah, it's that time of year, right? So let's see. Ooh, Christmas Carol at the Old Vic from 33 quid. What else have we got? The Snowman from 20 pounds. We've got uh, Simon Callow's A Christmas Carol. That's a rival to The Christmas Carol at the Old Vic. Oh, Simon. Uh, it's 33 pounds, which makes it exactly the same price as The Old Vic. Hmm, what are you going to go for? Simon versus The Old Vic. That's a lesser-known uh, Roald Dahl novel. Anyway, uh, enjoy those. You can do via the TodayTix app. Download TodayTix, the theatre ticket app, from the App Store and Google Play to see theatre differently. I still got those letters and they are really... I look at them and they feel so kind of 
painful. It's almost like the kind of pain you want to stick your finger into. It hurts so much, but it's something kind of pleasurable about it as well. It's so, so, so humiliating. You do what painful. a lot of us did and doesn't exist anymore as much, which is you spend a fortune on headshots and a letter and got them printed and typed them up possibly totally yep. yeah and you know paid postage and hardback envelopes things that yeah. cost money when you don't have money yeah and got nothing in return yeah you got a few replies i imagine percentage wise out of the hope ones you sent out and then yeah. and then you go into not being an actor for a yeah. while yeah nothing i mean i yeah nothing i i started teaching uh via um the Rather High Theatre Workshop, started teaching drama, completely unqualified, of course, yes, but way. ended up working at Leicester Polytechnic on a theatre arts course, which was a BA in, in performing arts. I worked there for five years. Brilliant. Um, I had a brilliant time there in, t- in terms of my own education. Yeah. Because although I was teaching, I was kind of grabbing all the visiting lecturers who came by yeah. and you know, going to all their classes. I wasn't much older than the students. Yeah. I mean, I was only 25. I did the same I thing. I started teaching at university at 25 and uh, booked visiting lectures based on who I really wanted to do a workshop <laughs> with. <laughs> you and me both. That is so funny. I was thinking we could get them, um, you know, like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, People that you wanted to learn from. Yeah. I used to do all the voice classes, and, yeah. like the voice teaching that came, everything. And I had a fantastic bunch of students they were they were really really interesting i learned from them of yeah. course and we started devising theater I started oh well okay so the story of how i got that job in the first place was that a good good friend of mine who had been i'd known at, at rather high through the dartington connection was had had a baby she'd been offered this full-time job as a lecturer at leicester polytechnic She'd had a baby and she'd said, I'm going to go, I'll have the baby and I'll go back to work after three months. And she, her, the first thing she was teaching that term was Stanislavski. And um, so she went back to work after three months. She, she stood, so the baby was at home. She was at work. Uh, she lasted, I think, about a day and a half, then stood in the, in the corridor screaming, I've got to get her back to my baby! And um, called me up and, you know, absolute panic. He said, can you come and teach Stanislavski tomorrow? And I said, I've never read Stanislavski. I know nothing about Stanislavski. You know, I could probably tell you a bit about Brecht, but I can't tell you anything about Stanislavski. And uh, she said, well, you've just got to because I've got to get back home to my baby. So I thought, OK, uh, I went, I had a weekend. I went and bought an actor of prepares. And I read it. I tried to work. I made up some. <laughs> I made up some exercises. I mean, they're all this the exercises. Is how, this is how I, I'm going to put this out here. This is how I think all university teaching works. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have been more ignorant. Um, and I so I arrived at this class of you know hungry eighteen year olds when I was only twenty five myself, twenty four or twenty five, and said, right, well. Let's let's start thinking about who, what, where, why, and how. That's and ridiculous. It was, um, but it, it was a. We found it all together. So, mm. so there we were, all looking at the at the original material, the original source material, rather than the interpreted version. Yes, and actually, because you hadn't had a chance to read the interpreted version. No, I never got that far. It was a busy weekend. <laughs> so we actually had a really good time exploring it together, and we started devising work through character, and then that. 
became some, in a way, for me, that was the beginning of my writing as well, because it was about yeah. how do you create plot through character? And yeah. so it, do, it does have its tentacles later on. I once taught mask, having yeah. literally yeah. just opened a box of masks that had arrived from Australia and uh, never having done any mask work in my life before. <laughs> And the guy who was convening the course, I was teaching on the course, said, just go and get them to look in the mirror in the bathroom at how the, how the mask changes their physicality. And that's pretty much the first lesson. They would go to the bathroom and I would sit and go, OK, when they come back, what are we going to do next? And I think, right, well, I'll get them to do like uh, copying each other or something. And it was like, literally, I mean, this is, I apologise to all the students that were in that class, <laughs> but I'm not going to name the guy who convened because he should have known better. But they literally... Partial tapes sliced open, bags, masks taken out, comedia masks. Well, that's that one. That's that one. And then you go into a room full of people paying reasonable money for a, le- a lesson. That's why I don't teach in universities anymore. No, I couldn't, no, couldn't stand no. over it. Well, anyway. I, my, my most embarrassing moment, just to yeah. just to put the tin lid on it, is when I, I demonstrated a running forward roll <laughs> to my to my class I mean you know I was I'm, I'm For, not to what end I'm on not, my desk <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's morning we've got to do movement so we've done enough we'll do, we'll do run 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 the mat's here you put your arm down here you roll through and you at stand least there's up a mat. at the end at least there's a mat and I did this and in the process broke my collarbone <laughs> sorry I shouldn't <laughs> laugh. so we could not admit to my class that I had a broken collarbone <laughs> I never did. I just went around and just suffered in silence. Yeah. There's my penance, eh? Yeah. I mean, that is... Again, there's, that's a scene in something, I'm convinced of it. Um, so, to take it kind of forward from then, um, I think it's right that we spent slightly longer on that because it seems like you had a longer journey to getting there. We haven't, we haven't actually I've got still, there yet. We haven't got there. I mean, I've still got another five years to go. Come on. So, okay. So at the end of the teaching, I, basically what happened is I had a nervous breakdown. I had a total mental breakdown, which was because I was, as my good friend always says, in, in, you know, in honour of Nick Park, uh, wearing the wrong trousers, that I was simply not in the job I needed to be in. I had a... a this uh, is like listening to myself. <laughs> Well, the interview you had this resolution. Right? Uh, 29. You were 29, but yeah. Yeah, we followed so, so a similar, was I. Yeah. similar journey. In the wrong trousers. In the wrong, wearing the wrong trousers. Who's, who's, who owns these trousers? They don't belong to me. <laughs> they, they, I just knocked back up. They don't work. Q meltdown. Okay. I, so, and when I was very ill, the doctor in the hospital said to me, he asked me a few questions. He wasn't, he wasn't a psych, psychologist. He was a cl- clinical physician. He said... Asked me, I think he asked me about three questions. One of them was, what do you dream about? You know, something very simple. And then he said, okay, if you don't go back to acting, you are going to be ill for the rest of your life. And as he said wow. it, I thought, oh, fuck, that's true. I think he said something true there. And did you always know this or had you been successfully kind of oh, locking it away? Oh, i away from it. Yeah, you compartmentalised. Totally, yeah, totally. i have been thinking, oh, here I am. I'm a, you know, important senior lecturer and a blah, blah. And, um, you know, I've got a whole other career and all my friends, because this is the backdrop. A lot of my friends who I'd left university with from Cambridge were straight off the starting blocks doing incredibly well. So I was incredibly really embarrassed about the fact that I was not doing well wasn't even wasn't even acting wasn't even anywhere near it so my pride was 
sort of making me not not admit to the fact. What that. had you put that down to? Like it, 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 to yourself, whenever you were looking at people around you, contemporaries who might not have won the NSDF Best Actress Award, yeah. who might not have come out of Cambridge, and you were probably the one as they looked at it, the one straight out of the blocks, and she's won a Fringe First. They've won a Fringe First up at Edinburgh with that play. Like, do you? How did you explain that to yourself? Like, was it? Internally, I mustn't be good enough. Was it, I'm not lucky enough? What, what, what Internally, was... I thought it was, I wasn't good enough. But I think now, looking back on it, I can see that it was, and this is something that's so important to have some objectivity on ourselves as actors, is that I just was not an ingenue. I mean, I wasn't. I was playing, uh, my natural playing age, even when I was a kid, was I was always playing 40-year-olds, you know. Mm. I had an older natural playing age. I was five foot two. I was dumpy. I was, I just, I just didn't have that kind of flirtatious energy, that, you know, youthful kind of bubbly thing that, in fact, what I now understand, the industry just wants to exploit, actually, and by employing young women to play these roles in you know, as, 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 I don't know, Lizzie Bennett or whomever it may be, that they, they put, I now see that as being, like, oh, no, that poor young woman is being cast and she is going to, unless she's got some very good guidance and some very strong support and some people who can help her on this way, is going to think that she's got this because of she's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant actress. Was in, tra- in fact, some that occasionally that's the case, but very often it's an energy and a spirit that is wanting that that is being, I don't know, min- you know, it becomes mincemeat in 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 what the business needs and how it uses you know sexuality, women, etc. So that's how I would look at it now. Is that I just was not that. So I had potentially I was a character actress. You know, this was the old spotlight categories, but that's where I was and that's where I remember. It's a great place to be. Yeah. It's a great place to be. And you're not likely to get many jobs. And unfortunately, what happened, looking back on those painful, painful, painful years, is that I just didn't quite have the um, humility. I I tell you, I needed humility. I didn't get it until much later in life. Um, I needed the humility to just put myself in some kind of rep position. I needed to be doing theatre at at some level, you know, day on, day on, day on, day on. Week so on, what, week what week did on. you, if, if that's what you should have been doing at that age, what did you think you should have been doing? Where did you, at 22, 21, coming out of Cambridge, what were your aspirations and assumptions about where you should be? I didn't really think... Well, I, as I said, I felt I should be making my own theatre with my own theatre company. Okay. You know, and that was, again, unrealistic. I didn't have the business acumen or skills, and I didn't have anybody else around me who could have put that together. And I didn't have the confidence either to say, oh, you know, I mean, Simon McBurney came out ar- around the same time, perhaps a little little older than me, but not much. You know, I've got a theatre company. I've got it. you know, I, this is how it's going to be. No, I didn't have that. I didn't have a savvy to do to sort of say I'm going to change the world my own way I was I I was and I don't know it's very difficult I feel like actors at some level there is a a level in the process of acting you are there is a there is an actual kind of this is such an unfashionable word subjugation 
to something bigger than you in order to serve something as an actor. <laughs> but as a maker or a writer or a producer, you have to have the opposite of that. Mm. You can't be subject, subjugate, subjugated, whatever the word is, to, to something else. You have to be the inventor and the originator. So, and I think I've always been a bit torn between those two positions. So looking at... Yeah, I can identify with that. Looking at your yourself then... You know, just before you, your time, whenever you say you're unwell, and a doctor had that helped you with that moment of of relative clarity, um, and your other friends are, as you say, straight out of the blocks and doing their things, and you you mentioned being embarrassed. Mm. So, so whenever you meet those guys, the conversations that take place are very much them talking about themselves, I guess, and how well they're doing, or are you hearing this secondhand? No, we were, I was still you know, very close to all these people, and we were part of a world together, and they're still my very, very close friends. Well, it wasn't WhatsApp groups, right? So was it <laughs> was it you travelling into London to see them and things, or travelling to Bristol to see them? Like, were you going to see your friends yeah, in I shows? Yeah, you know, I used to go and see them in shows, or just hang out on film sets. And, and how, did, how, did, how does that feel, then, as somebody who is semi-successfully compartmentalising and locking away this aspiration and love that you have, um, but also going and seeing, waving it in front of your own face effectively by volunteering to go and see other people being happy, seemingly doing what it is that you at least one point wanted to do. It was just so, so painful. I mean, I can't, I, I don't even dare think, put myself back in that role because until... I got rid of the wrong trousers and changed changed them for the right trousers. It's almost too sort of agonising to remember what that felt like. I mean, I remember seeing a, a very good friend of mine doing um, cherry cherry orchards in the West End, and she's she was wonderful and absolutely wonderful, and um, just this sort of pain of imagining that that was would never be available to me at all and what actually happened in the, the truth of it is that when so the doctor said you've got to, you've got to you know you've got to go back to this thing that is is your calling and I thought okay that's true how do I do that that how do I psychologically get myself into a position where I'm prepared to be as humiliated as I felt that would make me in fact of course I don't suppose anybody else gave a Blind fuck, but I was—I felt humiliated by saying, oh, "Excuse me, actually, I'd like to do this too." It's that giving people the chance to say no, isn't it? It's sometimes that we're constantly asked to do it. We're constantly asked to put ourselves on the line and have people turn us down. Mm. So whenever you do a self tape, you go for a meeting, whatever it is, there's that constant threat that statistically most of the people, most of the time, will get turned down. Yeah. And that sometimes that's too much. Like sometimes you get asked to do it for certain people who you think are dickheads or you don't like their work or whatever. And you think, why should I give them the chance to... And inevitably they will say no to me, but I'm still fucking going to do it. And you go in and inevitably get the no. And I suppose at the other side of that, when you're 29 and thinking, all my friends are going to know that I'm trying now, that must be a huge kind of psychological hurdle to get past mm. to think but as soon as I'd done it as soon as I'd gone through the set of barriers um it was a massive to, to me being able to give myself the life that I actually felt was the life I needed to have to be 
anything approaching a sound human being. As soon as I had actually done that, it, the growth, the psychological growth was so great that it gave me the resilience to carry on. You knew why you were doing it. it. Yeah. I knew that it was for a good reason. And I, I mean, the other big, big and simple, but very important thing that happened to me at the same time and was very much part of this was I stopped drinking. Right. And I'm not saying that those those years had been absolutely lost to alcohol, but certainly alcohol had played a big part in my de- ability to delude myself. Coping. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did have to have another job. So my equivalent of the restaurant was starting to write. Right. So, I mean, I don't know many actors who have one job of being an actor, even very successful actors. You know, you suddenly find, oh, actually, they're running a business, you know, selling double glazing or they bought 15 properties in, you know, Dartford 25 years ago. You know, I mean, most people I know uh, who are actors are not actually entirely surviving on what their acting is bringing them in. That's the big lie, though, isn't it? That's the big lie that everybody coming through thinks that's that's the dream and that it's achieved it's they think it's more achievable than it is because a lot of the people who are acting full-time are actually also running a catering company with yeah. their partners yeah. or whatever it or is they bought all the facilities um ha- uh, trucks business in northern ireland yeah. for example <laughs> you know it's it's a kind of it, it's it's and 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 the, a lot of the hugely hugely successful actors that i know um haven't got any money they're living a life that looks as if they have for because of every, all the publicity things, mm. you know, look like that. But they haven't actually got, you know, the day they get chucked out of the five-star hotel in Cannes, they haven't got the money if they decide to stay on for an extra day to pay for a, you know, croque monsieur. That, you know, that, so... It's true. You know, it's very it's, true. It's a world of illusion. Uh, the marketing of our world is, is very illusory. So... Based on that, I'm assuming that once you make the decision to be an actor at age 29, it was really easy. You started working and that's how you've ended up here today. No, with no difficulty whatsoever. <laughs> yes, end of interview. Um, <laughs> well, what happened then was I actually, I had a mortgage in, in Leicester. I had lots of things. I could not actually just say, um, it was also the time of the first crash. Yeah. So I couldn't say um, I've got no income at all. And therefore, I'm going to start acting tomorrow. So instead, because you do lose part of the downside of that is you lose a salary, right? Yes, yeah, I lost yeah. a salary. I was mm-hmm. on twenty thousand a year, which was quite a lot of money in nineteen eighty nine or when, yep. no ninety one. I think we were looking at. You know, it was a lot of money, and mm-hmm. I had you know I had to pay what these these commitments, and my house was now I had a negative equity because um, the crash had happened and blah blah blah. So I got a job in the Arts Council in London. But no, most importantly, I said, well, why don't I start writing? Because if I start writing, then I could have another string to my bow. And I knew some friends who, who were also writers. And I thought, I'm no worse a writer than they are. I just know it. So if they can get a job, I can get a job. So I started, I rang a friend and said, do you want to write a film script with me? And at the same time, got a full-time job in London because I thought, right, let's move back to London. Let's just try and be amongst the world that I want to be. And I worked there for two and a half years, during which time I had a lot of time off in lieu because, you know, you do weekends and evening performances and all of these things. I was working as the performance art officer, live art officer. I'm just going to pause you there. Working as the live art officer is the is the point which I'll remind you, but I'm just going to flip this right again. Sorry. Just going to have a little fold in your t-shirt for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. 
So you're working as a performance, <coughs> art, performance art officer. I was working as a performance art, performance art officer at the Arts Council of Great Britain, as it was, became the Arts Council of England whilst I was there. And um, worked there for two and a half years, during which, on all my days and time off in Lou, I wrote. And I wrote enough scripts to be able to get a com- an agent, a literary agent, and a commission for a new idea. Okay, lovely. From somebody in, in UK TV. Getting paid to write. Getting paid to write. The dream. And as soon as I got that commission, I walked into my boss's office at the Arts Council and said, I'm resigning. And um, I almost said, fuck you all up the wrong end. <laughs> yeah, that, that, he that. was a real tosser, that guy. <laughs> Um, and I and then I walked uh, then I walked out and I rang up my literary agent and said I want to start acting and she said oh well that's funny because we're just about to start an actors list and it was Casarotto at the time and they for a few years they had an actors list but then they decided to focus back on what their core business which has always been you know creative um, directors and producers and so on writers so so those two things, I was enabled to become a professional actor by writing. Um, and so, and then I had this hum- great humiliation, gulp, uh, of ringing up. You know, I was in the privileged position of having all those friends from university days were now working as directors, producers, they're working in the TV industry, <laughs> theatre, etc. I rang every single one of them and embarrassingly said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to start acting. I was 35 now, right? I oh, know, 34, I think. Um, Who's counting? <laughs> and I said, I want, to, you know, I'm going to start being a professional actor. So it's taken you five years to get from the doctor from the saying, if you, don't, if you don't act, you'll be unhappy for the rest of your life or unwell, yeah. to actually being in a position to start. Yeah, it's always struck me that the main job of an actor... <laughs> The main job is to be available. That is the and that is the hardest nut to crack. Mm. How do you, you know, earn a living and be available? So you, and and we all find endless sort of paths of least resistance towards that. But without being available, you cannot go for the the role that you might be suitable for that, you know, just fits you in that particular way. And without being able to have that role, then you can't have the, the growth that comes from playing that role that then means you can play the next role. It's it's so true. And that's, that's you know, that is the problem. How many how many jobs are flexible? As you say, you're talking about, uh, you know, catering business, what restaurants, that's one. Things that don't pay well and tend to have no security. But a lot of those jobs are the kinds of jobs that will eat at your self-esteem, mm-hmm. make you feel like shit on the bottom of somebody else's shoe. And you cannot have that as an actor. You have to protect the part of you that is precious to mm-hmm. you and look after that little garden. It, it just needs it. And if you're in an environment which is hostile to that, you know, the, the, the plants die. That part of you dies. Yep, I'm just. Yep, it's true. It's it's so true that idea that that those jobs that actors need to get are the ones that eat away at your soul. I don't think I've ever thought about it as clear as as clearly as that. And having been through that, I know it's true. I also know that friends who can't afford to be available because they take jobs that pay slightly better, mm. which tend to be nine to fives, and they're working in an office, and mm. you know. 
eight times out of ten they'll get the hour to run around the corner. That's not the way to go into an audition. And then also the two times out of ten they don't get to go around the corner because they just can't free up mm. the time or they can't be made available. Mm. Like those are the expensive moments of unavailability that I think mm. increasingly in a more expensive London with, you know, mm. uh, actors getting paid less and there being more of them. And mm. I think London's uh, dead loss in terms of this now. I mean, I was in L.A., um, the other a couple of weeks ago and got an uber um and there was yeah. a, it was an actor driving it driving the car i thought hey and we had a really good chat about how useful a platform like uber is for mm. actors because actually you can then choose when to work and when not to work yeah um so maybe there are ways through with all this i can't remember peer-to-peer sharing is that uh, what's called? i don't know gig, gig economy gig economy you know maybe there are ways through but it's it's still London seems to me prohibitively expensive mm. for, for for starting out in any career creatively. Um, so we've got you to the point from resetting poetry in North Wales uh, to um, having called around some friends saying, I'm in London, I'm 34. That's not part of the conversation, it's just a fact. Uh, and I'm acting again. Mm. Are you saying... I'm trying to act? Are you saying I'm going to be acting? Are you trying a bit of acting? Like how, how much are you committing to the I'm an actor? I did commit to I'm an actor. And I was lucky that they remembered me. You know, I, we'd done a lot of plays together. Yeah. And they had confidence that I could act. Whether they had any confidence that I could act in a kind of grown-up in professional environment, I'm not sure, not so sure. But they, the sort of base level tick they didn't have to be convinced of that but they so one friend who was directing uh, a medical drama at the time he gave me my first ever screen job which was uh playing a midwife i've played many since um playing a midwife and uh, uh coming in delivering a baby it's tiny little scene and of course i was really excited and i really enjoyed it but as i cut the umbilical cord of this baby fake baby real baby but you know f- fake in the sense of had not just been born um i'm i use my fingers like this uh I'm, you know well for 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 listeners i'm i'm demonstrating with two fingers um in the shape of a pair of scissors and i cut a fake but what I thought was somehow below the camera, <laughs> below the frame, I cut these two things. And as I did so, I went, like, with my, you know, to make the sound of cutting. And my friend, who was directing this, just laughed and laughed and laughed. You are that, you know, that you're, sin- you're so in green. some workshop somewhere where you're pretending yeah. to be a midwife. I had a lot to learn. I yeah. had a hell of a lot to learn. So... You've gone. The other side of this is that, from the point of view of family and non-acting friends, you've gone from being Joanna, who went to Cambridge, did very well, came out, uh, started teaching, worked in university, now works for the Arts Council, to Joanna, who is living on the breadline in their heads. Right? Yeah. We talked before we started to record very briefly about that idea of when people ask you, you know, how's the acting going. Mm. Was that transition a difficult one to make when you went back to those people, when you had family events or when you had kind of time with people from, you know, if you were talking to people who you used to work with at the university or the college or whatever, did, did that pressure ever kind of start to bear down on you, the pressure of expectation of other people outside? 
No, I think I had a kind of burning, like, I'm not going to fuck it up again. I am not going to fuck my life up again. I am. I do not give a shit what anybody else thinks. Um, this is the truth. I have to do it. And I and that did you know, keep... I, for some reason, I went through a portal of humiliation from which, you know, the white heat of that burnt off some of my own shit yeah. so that I was able to... To mix many metaphors. White hate burning off shit yeah, is possibly... Yeah, the biggest <laughs> metaphor mix Burning of off shit. But, it's you, you know, I just, had to, I just had to do it. And then I knew I had to do it. And without, without alcohol, again, I think that was such a big part of it. Because I couldn't get into those kind of in-your-cups, kind of like romanticised conversations about a wannabe future. I had to have, wake up sober in the morning and do something. And I did. I just could do it and it wasn't ever a rebellion just from what you said you had the support of your mother when you went to Cambridge it was her kind of suggestion that you go there because of her awareness of footlights and I guess that it wasn't like you you weren't rebelling by doing this you weren't rebelling against anything you were doing it for yourself rather than to stick it to someone else or you know Mm -hmm. so I guess that continued there was no nobody you know I don't know at that point if if your parents were were still alive but there was nobody at home going or you know a partner at home going like John we need to bring in some extra money and that was another big made it easier because there was nobody who was sort of saying who I would have had to have listened to, you know. Yeah, who met you whenever you were making money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That would have been or a huge... Or having prestige, you know, being important. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was important. I, you know, I the Arts Council, I had £7 million. Pounds. It was my choice to where it went. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't quite, but you know what I mean, broadly speaking. And my parents actually, looking back on it, I have to say, hats off to them, because when I came to them and said, I'm giving it all up and I'm going to start acting again or be an actor they said yeah go for it do what you want and that it's not many parents I think Mm. who would be that free and easy and the I was in therapy at the time and I could feel my therapist thinking I was crazy I mean she never said it she was you know it was proper lie down therapy on a couch and she was behind me so I couldn't even see her face but I could hear you can imagine what she was doing <laughs> I could hear in the tone of her voice you hear her eyes thinking, roll what what yeah. at this age you're going to go and be an actor what a stupid job in the first place and, and you know what And on, on, on balance on statistics absolutely on she, she was in she that moment, right. Dead right. She was dead right. Dead right. And if somebody came to me now and said that's what they were going to do, I would be very sceptical as to whether that was a good idea. But you know yourself, don't you? You know mm. in your own self what's what, you're, what you've got to do. And I just had to do it and sink or swim. It's fascinating. Um, so you're now mid-30s. You've worked professionally. Whatever yeah. that is, you have, a pair of scissors with finger scissors and self-made sound effects. Um, it's probably on your CV to this day. <laughs> it does own sound effects? Um, as a way of kind of, they, they, I try to treat everybody the same in these interviews, so I always ask similar questions. Um, and one of the ones I ask to help identify people to listeners who might not be aware of them or their work, but also to help people themselves redefine themselves for people who might be well known for certain things I ask what's the one job you're most proud of and that's a really difficult question and I know that and you can say well 
there's two, but it can be maximum two for if there's two for very different reasons, for example. But what are the jobs that if somebody was listening to this and didn't, who's Joanna Scanlon? I've just pressed this and I've been listening a lot about, you know, uh, a long route into acting. What are the jobs that you would go, I would like you to know about these. These are the jobs that have defined me or that I've really enjoyed or whatever reasons mm. personally. Mm. But what are the, what's the job or, t- or two jobs that you're like, these are, this is me. This is the kind of work I like to do. I want to do more of or that I'm particularly proud of. Yeah, of course you ask. That's such a hard question there. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to pick out of the brand, brand barrel of my career. Yep. Girl with a Pearl Earring. Okay. Which was a film I did, I think, 2003. Um, it stars, if you haven't seen it, it's uh, it's based on a Tracy Chevalier novel of the same name, uh, which is based on a, um, for me, a painting of the same name. And it was a story of... Um, young girl's relationship. Well, it was actually the story of how a painting got painted and uh, the subject and the painter. So the subject was played by Scarlett Johansson and she was 17 at the time we we started filming and the painter was played by Colin Firth who was um, playing Vermeer. So do you want to give his age as well in like, like, you know, classic local newspaper way? She was 17. He was... (laughs) 43 or so, I suppose. I don't know. He was in his 40s, early 40s. Brackets, 43. I think he's the same age as me. Yeah, no, actually, no, yeah, good point. Because, yeah, one of the reasons I think that film was a great experience for me is that we were, uh, many of us were exactly the same age. Right. So, yeah, so I was the same age as Colin. So it would have, I would have been around, I would have been around, oh, hang on, I was born in 1961. So 2003, 42. Okay, so Colin would have been 42. I think he's 61 as well. So was the producer, Andy Patterson. So was the director. Uh, so was the writer. There was a, like a, a gang and they're all the same age. Um, Scarlett, of course, was 17. So she was in a very different, different category. <laughs> he was Kenny on her phone. Murphy is in it as yeah. well. And he was, he was very young. But anyway, that, that, I'm naming names and, and that's not the point of this. Just I'm just doing that to locate the yeah, film. Of course. Um, for anybody who happens to be wondering, what was that film? Um, but the reason that I love Truth be told, you hit those three people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I mean, they're so remote now. Look how look at the lives the lives they've had since. I know. But um, what happened for me on that film was it was shot in Luxembourg, and this is the big thing. And very, very brilliantly, Peter Weber, who was the director, and Andy Patterson, the, the producer, as I mentioned, decided that they would use a production team. Um, from the Netherlands, from Holland, rather than UK. So unlike a lot of British costume dramas, as you might think of it, um, where the set design is sort of, a, well, this is this is rude, but let's call it tacked on. This was this production was created out of people who knew the Netherlands and the art history of it to huge kind of in huge detail. Yeah, they hadn't had to research it for this job. Yeah, they knew it yeah. anyway. It was part of their DNA. Right. So they built the house, Vermeer's house. Now, Vermeer as a painter is, I'd, I'd studied art history at A-level and it, art has always remained an, int- an interest and you know, pleasure for me. Um, and Vermeer painted most of his... So that was part of the reason of the film. I loved the paintings to start with. And I'd already seen the whole... There was an exhibition in, in The Hague 
about five, ten years before that, where they put all the Vermeer paintings into one room for the very first time in history. Right. And I'd been to that exhibition. So it kind of Vermeer, Vermeer meant something, the Delft School meant something, blah, blah, blah. Vermeer, Vermeer painted in his own studio, nearly you know, a good proportion of his paintings are painted in the same corner of the same room with different subjects and different kind of scenarios. It, um, so they rebuilt that house and they put it in a studio and they built it instead of being a, a set where walls move and things. It was physically the house and it was put. The art director was a German woman um, called Claudia. And she my character was was Tanika, who is in famous in Dutch art because she is the milkmaid, the famous picture of the milkmaid, which goes on their butter. And, you know, it's like it's sort of iconic. National icon, yeah. Yeah. So um, and that was that's my character. She was she was the real maid of the household. Wow. And uh, C- uh, Claudia had made this uh, kitchen, filled it up with every single thing a real kitchen would have had uh, of that period. So how to make butter, how to clean, how to, you know, I love that. do laundry, how to cook this, how to do that, how to, how you wash the what the soap was. No acting required. No acting required. Just go in and live in it. So back to my moment of being transported into another world. It's brilliant. As a child mm. reciting that poem. I, it was like a doll's house magnified to the max where I could pretend to be in 1664 in this building, making butter, you know, cleaning fish and doing laundry as a woman might have done in that time. And it was, to me, because they'd gone to such trouble to recreate this. I mean, it's the thing I enjoy very much about bigger budget filmmaking is that often the art department are sensational and produce things that are just so detailed and so... So when you open a drawer, inside is a letter you know, that might have been there. It's never it's not part of the plot. It's just in that drawer, you know, that kind of detail, which for me, and that again relates to the Stanislavski thing. It relates to the detail of character and characterization and, and the process of coming up with character, which for me has always been, I, I love props. I love working with props. I love the relationship between object and actor and the way in which that defines how you, how you create the scene. So that's that would be my dream. That was one of the best jobs I ever had. It's a fine answer. Uh, I can imagine that would be glorious mm. because there's none of this. What will I do while I'm talking nonsense? Is there anything I can use? And then our department yeah. scrabbling around. Yeah. Um, what about you could? Oh. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's a job that you successfully got. The process to get jobs involves auditions, right? So this is more the kind of, I suppose, the standard interview bit of this. Do you enjoy auditions? Actually, I do. Why? Well, all those years when I wasn't acting and didn't have an opportunity to act, I've still got a deficit (laughs) from those lost years. And I always consider an an audition to be acting. So it's an opportunity to act in a room. And you've got a bit of an audience. If it's a, you know, I mean, selfies, self, selfies, self, well, might as well be self, self tapes. I'm not, I'm not very good at. And I don't, I find that confusing notion really as to what, what's intended in a self tape. But in a room where there's a, a little bit of an audience of the casting director and a, somebody else, 
It's acting. It and even if you're not going to get the job, you're still doing. You're still still pretending, aren't you? For the five or ten minutes that you're in there, doing it. So would that mean that after you've done your five or ten minutes, you come out and you think job done? Yeah. And you don't think about where no. it's going to lead or where no. it might not lead. No, I don't. I forget about it. In it's fact, a, I really forget about it so much so that I've forgotten and I thought, oh my God, I met that person or whatever. I did. Oh, oh no, I vaguely remember that. I'm watching something on telly and I guess to about, you know, it's episode three and I think, oh, this sounds vaguely familiar. Oh, I auditioned for that. What characterises a bad audition then? Not necessarily on your part, just in, t- in, in general. Disrespect. I mean, I think that a very, um, you know, it's not common in, in the British system, but occasionally you'll come across somebody who doesn't actually respect an actor's dignity and that is that's hor- that is really horrible um i mean obviously for commercials and so on though all that world it's part of it's part for the that's, course that's yeah. what it is um yeah. and and in fact i very early on i stopped doing commercial um castings even though i so desperately needed the money to just try and get through from a to b because it was hurting my spirit to such a degree to be treated like that and 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 it brought up in me such rage and such um hum, you know sense of sort of injustice indignity uh what's the word indignation uh i just couldn't i couldn't do it i walked out of a couple and then never went back yeah i got into trouble for telling off a casting director for the way they had treated the uh the some of the people who come to audition um, and I went back to my job, my day job, you know, at the time I was working in an estate agents, I'd been, she very kindly let me off to go into this audition and I, I was treated so badly. I just thought, I can't do this. I've got to say something. I said something. I went back to my job. I got a phone call from my agent within about 20 minutes saying, oh, darling, a bit of a problem. You've upset so-and-so terribly badly. And I thought, good, good, good. I'm glad. So, and, and whilst you're at it, don't bother sending me there ever again. Yeah, I've, I've had Thanks. this. I've had this very experience. Um, I just, in terms of, um, there's something on at the minute which is people pushing for yes or no. There's this yes or no campaign where um, actors are kind of stress the importance of letting people off the hook, as it were, or letting them know whether or not they've got it. Actually, that they haven't got it usually, because yeah. if you get a job, you do find out. That's the nice thing about it. Um, it'd be weird to watch something and think, oh, I auditioned for that and got it. Forgot yeah. to turn up to work. Um, so do you think that's important? Do you sound like it's not important to you personally? So it sounds like you just I move on. I think it is, on. actually. I think letting people know they haven't got a job is, is important. Um, I, th- I think... Being left hanging with the the fantasy of of something that might happen if you did get that job, whether it's oh then I could pay my gas bill, you know, or whether it's then I could, you know, go to Hollywood. It doesn't really matter. I just think it's okay. This relates to the kind of norms of business practice in many many other industries and the way in which I do not quite understand why our business is. Is not subject to those normal ter- terms and conditions of employment that seem to provide, prevail in other industries. I don't actually understand why that is the case. And one of those courtesies uh, in normal professional business practices, you do inform candidates who have not got a job that they have not got a job. No, just leave them. 
so yeah i do i think it's i think it's it's a courtesy um do you ever crave feedback what after an audition mm. no i don't actually partly because it should if it's going to be feedback it should be two-way street and i should be able to give them feedback too <laughs> sometimes you, that's not necessarily the best idea sometimes it's not yeah. always the right thing yeah no, I think we just, you know, I, I'm fine about saying, yeah, okay, let's both both choose to um, let this one lie. Um, do you have people you consider to be rivals? And I mean that in, you know, the most gentle sense of the word, people who, if you turned up for a meeting and, and it had been badly organised and they had, you know, an actor in the head who is also up for the same role, do you have people who you see and you think, oh, God, it's them, or, you know, they'll get it, or people who you look at and think, I should be doing that job. Are there people who come up again? No, I need to name them, obviously. But do you have that kind of sense of internal rivalry with, who, with people who may not know that you consider them a rival? Um, not, well, I, I was going to say no, definitely not, because it's usually lovely to see somebody at an audition, because, yeah, you know, if they're, yeah. you know, usually very, very pleased to see a friend, friendly face, and most people are extremely friendly. I don't think in our business you really survive that long if you're not a halfway decent human being i mean it just doesn't kind of it's just too small an industry it doesn't really work but that said i was i was at an event the other day and this woman very nice sweet young woman ran up to me she said oh sorry but um are you in w1a and um i thought for a moment as she said it i thought no i'm fucking not actually um, and I said, I said, no, no. And then she said, oh, sorry. And I said, but I should have been. So there's obviously some part of me, but I don't take that, you know, I don't, I'm not blaming Sarah Parrish or Monica Dolan for taking my bit. It's more like the producers, I might think. Yeah. John Morton, what went wrong there? Yeah, you know? I'm still waiting for that call. Um, <laughs> an agent once told me many years ago that an actor is only ever happy in the five minutes after they get a job. And in his version of reality, it's at that's that point that self-doubt kicks in and that he spends the rest of the time, as my agent currently says, sometimes it's about managing people's, you know, uh, moods quite often. Um, so do you recognise yourself in that statement? And if you disagree with it, what do you think um, is the time when actors are happiest or whenever you're happiest? Well, I often think the only time I'm happy is is because I do so little theatre these days, but is between action and cut, that that is the time I'm happy. There is really no other time because there are always issues, problems, uh, anxieties, uh, energy management issues more than anything else, which make it, everything else uncomfortable but that goes back to what i said about the poem at the beginning is that that's when i'm happiest when i'm in that altered state that other world i was very lucky the very very first thing i ever did on camera was uh, no it was it was that was my first professional job but my first thing on camera was not professional it was it was helping a friend out with a short film and she had her, her cinematographer Seamus McGarvey. Oh, not bad. No, and this is like, this was very early days for Seamus. And we did a short film, and I guess we filmed it over three or four days, and I learnt a massive amount. And I learnt it through him. Because 
I used to think that acting, you know, was about your relationship with the director um, and your fellow actors. I still think it's about your fellow actors. Uh, in the, you know, between that action and cut thing, for me, there's sort of magic going on with other actors, which I it, it's again, I think, the meat and drink for me. But but I what I learned from working with Seamus in his very quiet way was that actually it's about working with the camera working and that's working with the camera operator mm-hmm. so you have this almost secret world that despite monitors and anything else no one else can see and it's and they'll only see that when they when they actually see it on you know put through the right um mechanism to be able to observe it but there's a kind of i mean a kind of uh yeah complicity between you two that's going on and I've worked with some great great DPs Jamie Kearney did the thick of it and I always think and say that that uh, despite the utter genius of Armando Iannucci that a, a huge amount of the success of the thick of it comes from Jamie Kearney because he was choosing the shots we were you know as improvised an improvised camera it was not tough. they were not setups really tough and he had to find the comedy and he ha- and everybody was just offering, 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 and he would find the thing that was the funniest thing to find. So that's one camera. Sorry, I don't know many topics. There were two cameras in that case, but he was under his sort of wow. tutelage. His, his sort of wow. you know, his sort of his eye prevails. Put it that way. Um, Incredible. I loved working with him, and I've worked with many other very, very, very wonderful DPs. And to me, that's why when it between action and cut. That's really what's going Nobody on. Nobody else exists but you and the DP. Yeah, and, and my fellow actors. Yes. But we're all, we're in a secret. Yeah. And no one else can know it. And no that's, one else can get to us. lovely way of thinking about it. No one can touch us. They can't, you know, they just can't. Yeah. And I really love that. I mean, there's something so childish about yeah. it, isn't there? But it's, but it is childish. Um, do you get nervous before action or before a show or... Before a job begins? Theatre, I have become, well, I haven't done any for so long that goodness knows what would happen. How long? Now. How long? I haven't done a, sh- a play since nine, oh, it's getting on for over 10 years. Okay. Um, I was, was going to do one this summer and then dates of something else got in the way and I was getting quite excited about the prospect a bit again. But I fear terribly for, you know, stage, just basic stage fright now. Um, I don't have it with a camera, don't have stage fright, and that's simply because of thinking, well, if I fuck it up, I can do it again. Um, Whereas in the theatre, that's not strictly the case. Mm. However, there isn't... I I mean, like, the the other day I did had to do something in front of a big audience which was reading you know reading things out and I did really really love the you know just us all being in the same room thing that you there's nothing there's nothing can quite replace that so yeah I don't think nerves is a is a huge problem for me Um, do you read reviews and they're coming at the other side of it do you let you know what, what other people think of what you do I wish I could say I didn't read reviews, but I am voracious. I will look at, you know, from whenever I think a review is about to appear, I will be checking my phone um, and every kind of Google access point. Um, 
that I possibly can. And always fearful. However, that said, I did come off Twitter because I, early days of Twitter, I was on Twitter and I did get some what you might call reviews from the general public um, of how fat and ugly I am. Oh, okay. Um, and I just thought, oh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't need that. With this. Yeah. So I, I suppose I'm looking for strokes. Do you, do you Google yourself? Have you Googled yourself? Yes, I do. Did you find anything new or interesting that you didn't know before? Is there anything on there that you think that's not true or is there anything generally, alarming? Generally, it's fairly accurate. I think the press cover, press coverage is fairly accurate. I think it's I think it's important to Google yourself, actually, as an actor, because you need to see where your work is landing because mm. it can be really odd places. You know, there might be some blog that somebody's writing and it's about, I don't know, mental health or something and something you did in a show or a, something you wrote appears in their blog. And I think, oh, that's quite interesting to know that. Um, and, you know, I, d- I don't tend to do my, look at my IMDB star rating very often, but every so often if I was really bored, I might think, oh God, I've, I've dipped 2,000 points since this week whatever yeah, yeah. look yeah. at that graph over five years that doesn't tell a good story like I have to admit in my lower moments uh, i.e. Monday mornings I do check IMDB and I go through periods of checking it every week and then not checking it for a year and it's just I guess the happier you are and the more you're working the less you do those things whereas if you're like oh, I haven't worked in a bit I wonder what I wonder what's happening on IMDB if that's something to do with it well I, for me of course it's a procrastination Mm. tactic from writing so there you are sitting in front of your computer with supposedly a a task ahead of you writing wise and then oh the computer's here what else else does the computer do i've been through every newspaper that i possibly can today so i might as well move on to myself um in the grand scheme of things uh looking at it as a whole how important do you think talent is talent Mm. It's a bit of a, you know, jump That's there. but a really tough one. Uh, I think it is important. Mm. Um, what it is is a bit indefinable, undefinable. Um, you know, okay, there's, there's nature-nurture really. Is, it sort of comes down to a nature-nurture question. I mean, some there's a giftedness, I guess, that, you know, some kids have um and you see them they can sing they you know they're in tune they or they can dance or they do whatever and then how that is nurtured and how the the context for how that um let's call it talent skill set is set is really is going to determine whether they have the psychology to be able to support it. And that notion that the, mo- the more important talent is the talent to have the talent, I think is true. That I've seen, I'm old, long enough in the tooth to have seen brilliance, utter talent and amazingness, you know, not uh, come to fruition because somebody's demons have, have brought them down. And I have seen the opposite. I've seen people with so-called less talent um, have the right ability to the resilience, the humility, the vision. Yeah. 
Humility and confidence and the right, and the right balance. It's a funny combination yeah. that you need the two. Yeah, I've seen that and I've seen them end up producing pieces of work that are just staggering mm-hmm. and brilliant. So I guess talent is important, but the talent to have the talent is the more important. That is possibly going to confuse people, but I think in a good way. They're going to think about that and go, to the talent to have the talent. <laughs> um, what's the longest you've ever gone without working? Well, obviously, from I mean, I. If I mean, we, if from we, from let's do you take mean from when I started. Let's a, take after post thirty five. Yeah. Okay. Post thirty five. Yeah. To be honest, I've never felt that I've had a big gap. Now I think I probably have had, but I haven't really counted the days. I've kept myself busy. I've done other things. I've I've say I say yes to everything. I say you know anything amateur professional, yes or no. You know, I, 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 tend to, I tend to go for anything. Do you think that's important? Because I know a lot of people, I know now in particular, a lot of people come out of drama school. I didn't train, so this is through my agent and through other people. A lot of people come out of drama school now will turn down theatre because they want to be available. That thing about being available. They want to be available for telly and for film. And so they'll, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to do theatre. Do you think that, and those are people come out of really good drama schools. Do you think that that decision of yours to say yes to everything is is part of the trick of staying healthy mentally, but also mm. keeping working that work attracts work? Or have you sometimes regretted it and felt, oh, I should have been, if I'd have been available, I could have done this other... That's never happened to me, the sense of if I've been available, I, I missed out on something. No. And I think that, um, you know, I think... There have been, again, it comes down to humility up to a point, because there have been times when I've thought, oh, how dare they how dare they ask me to do one line in this stupid comedy um i don't even like comedy um oh you know it's so insulting but i'll have to do it because i need you know 750 quid so i've trundled along full of you know hubris to have the best day of my life i know and to find that they then say to me oh just improvise it make up do what you want and you know, I've made a friend for life or I, you know, I had a great uh, sexual encounter as a consequence or do you know what I mean? You can't predict the future. You don't know where it's going to take you. The jobs that I thought were going to be like pulling teeth and the jobs that I've almost agreed to do under duress and by duress, I mean my own duress because I've looked at my bank balance have often and perhaps more often than not ended up being the ones that were joyous, probably because my expectations were so low in the mm. first place, but also because it turns out the bigger the job, the smaller you are within that job or the bigger the, mm. you know, that actually you can kind of be dwarfed by a process that you're not part of or, mm. you know, all those things. And it is, there's something about, I've learned as I've got older to say yes to everything. Uh, there's a point when ego took over and I was like, no, I'm yeah. not going to put myself in for that. I'm not going to give them the chance to say no. Yeah. But actually there's something lovely about about that saying yes, I guess. Yeah. That leads to other things. Yeah. I used to be, I used to go to um, a 12 step program called Debtors Anonymous. Right. In my, in those 30s years, you know, when I was just starting out, I, I had, I just, I was hopeless with money. I couldn't cope with anything and was always, had always had a sort of irritating overdraft that was preventing me from feeling good about myself and feeling good about buying anything. And, um, one of the rules that I sort of read in this Debtors Anonymous program was something like, don't turn 
turned down offers of money or something, you know. And I realised, oh, yeah, it's actually quite simple, isn't it? <laughs> it's actually quite simple. Who am I to say that I'm bigger yeah. than the, my own need for this very kind offer of somebody to give me some money? And so that and that's still tough for me. I mean, I can still go, mm. you know, go back on my on my back onto my heels and just feel I'm being disrespected in some way. Um, is acting difficult? It's complex. Whether it's difficult, I don't know. I mean, it's it is complex. I think you have to come at the job. You know, it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. It's it's it, it you any one role requires you a big three sixty. Um, it's enormously pleasurable for me. You know, so in that sense, I can't call it difficult because mm. there's a pleasure in it that I find in few other places in life. People find pleasure in. Things that are difficult, though, people find pleasure in puzzles or in, you know, strenuous activity that's climbing a mountain. They give the harder the harder the climb, I suppose, the greater the sense of achievement when you get to the top. Um, so so I guess that wouldn't exclude you from thinking it's difficult. Yeah, but it is it is a kind of combination of of completing a puzzle and climbing Everest, isn't it? In you know, it it, it is it does require. That's what I mean about the different bases that you've got to to cover in in the day, and and of course the big bit of the job is keeping yourself uh, continent, um, not leaking your actual stress neuroses. Yeah, yeah. So you know, being pleasant to be able to work with, which is a big part of it. Um, is it art? Do you consider yourself, I don't mean as a writer, I mean yeah. as an actor, do you consider yourself an artist? Well, you know, there's there's always been that difference of whether it's a, in, interpretive, so it's a second-level art rather than a primary art, and that it's also um, in some way a craft rather than an art. Um, I think I probably wouldn't consider it an art, actually. I think I probably would be slightly more on the craft side of things. Um, and partly that's to do with the fact that it lives in its lives in its moment, lives in its time. It's it's a communi- communication, and it has a context, and that doesn't tend to last. I suspect if I was booking tickets for see David Garrick, uh, you know, next Wednesday at the Bridge Theatre, I might be disappointed. You know that it, it lives in its moment, and so. And I suppose, you know, in a highfalutin classical art sort of context, art is supposed to last beyond beyond its context. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm... I've, I don't like to think of myself as an artist. I yeah, I went through like periods of it where I was totally, oh, and then I thought, no, it's quite important that I, I do say I'm an artist because X, Y, whatever, right? And then I'm like, oh, no. and every time I speak, I don't know the answer to that. Like if somebody, had, if somebody said to me, are you an artist? I'd probably be like instantly go, no, no, no. And then someone once said to me, I think it was Tom Goodman Hill said, or maybe it wasn't, who was it? Yeah, it was Tom said, when he watches other actors, he that's when he it's knows an it's an art. 
And I think that's just something in that as well, which is like, it's really hard when you personalize it and say, are you an artist? And you go, no, darling. But if you look at the people who are great and you sit and watch them, I think sometimes then you can admire craft as well. Mm. And it's um, Paul Higgins once said to me, like you can mow your lawn and, and treat it as art. Anything can be art. It depends about how you go about doing it. Mm. So a craft can be an art, arts and crafts, I guess. Anyway, but I think I do. I actually think that acting is something that is about the communion. It is not about. I I, I very rarely watch a performance of any great piece of work and think, oh, you are an amazing actor who doing this extraordinary, mm-hmm. wonderful thing. I don't think that. I think. Oh my goodness! Something has been opened up in my mind about the truth of truth of existence in this moment, and not only in my mind, but in this person's mind and that person's mind. The, my next door neighbours in the theatre, or my um, fellow viewers on t- telly, or whatever, and we're all in it together. It's the togetherness, it's the communicability that acting uh, permits. You know, it's like the conduit through which people can connect to each other, rather than an object in and of itself. I often find those performances where people can be picked out are the ones I don't like. Like the ones that you go and see a show and you're like, oh, they were outstanding. And you think, "Mm, Mm. was that at the expense Mm. of other people not getting their kind of chance to play? Or, you know, like it's always a cost Mm. to that kind of performance. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we're we're getting towards the end. You'd be glad to hear. Um, So whether craftsperson or artist... Do you consider yourself successful? Very. At what point do you think you started to feel like, not that I've arrived, but like I am a success, I've made a success of this? Day one of, you know, st- sitting there with the with the finger scissors making that noise. That's, <laughs> that's the day I was a success. You know, to me, to that, you know, it doesn't really alter. I, I, the success is being... Is having it's been given the permission to do it, and um, that's that is it hasn't really altered from that moment. I just thought, yes, I here I am, I can I'm allowed to do this, and I'm allowed to be part of, of this industry and part of a world with others doing it who are amazing others that I can you know I'm in the presence of and I'm able to work with I don't mean faces and names I just mean that magic thing that happens between two actors three actors four actors in a scene so then talking about resilience does that does that sense of success is that contingent on you being working on you having you know some some project in which to deploy the finger scissors or equivalent or is it it does does that energy carry through periods of unemployment? So after the I hate to bring it back to the finger, but after that job, mm. does that do you float along for a bit on that on on the uh, on the, the the kind of energy created by that job that allows you to say confidently in public and you know I am an actor because I got mm. paid to do it and mm. I will get paid to do it again. Mm. Does that carry you kind of through to the next one all the time, or are there moments whenever you start to feel like? oh, my God, I might not work again. Has that ever knocked on your door, that kind of, that black dog of... fear. Um, Well, as I say, I think I've just obscured it because I've just kept busy. So any friend who's asked me to do something where, you know, I might not be being paid, like this happened happened this weekend, a friend asked me to do something, I wasn't going to be paid to do it, but I did it and I loved it. And in 
in my head. I mean, I have got gainful employment coming up, but if I didn't have, I would still have said to myself, I'm an actor because I'm standing here on this stage reading this thing out and people are looking and listening. And we're doing it, I'm doing it with some other actors. And we're going to go back and have a cup of tea afterwards and we're going to say, oh, that bit was good and that bit, oh, that was a disaster. And, you know, it, that, that, that would be enough for me to define it as, as an actor. And I think I've just, I've just kidded myself in the, in the gaps by doing as much as I possibly can and keeping busy. If you could go back to yourself, and there are multiple points in your life when I could pick out, um, but if you could go back to yourself, um, just, you know, at the point, at that difficult point, whenever uh, the boyfriend who, in the way that you'd been educated by the books that you'd read, who you thought might turn into the, the life partner who... My Ted Hughes, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what an unfortunate... Uh, yeah, your Ted Hughes. I still didn't ever yeah. really care about the end of that story. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at that point, if you go back to yourself at that point and offer yourself some advice, um, what kind of things might you offer that 21 to 22-year-old to help make the intervening years more simple, more simpler, rather? I wouldn't have changed a thing, you know. I wouldn't. And that's because I needed the time to emotionally mature. I was not emotionally in a fit state to be a professional actor in my 20s. And it need, I needed to go through some the wilderness years of I just needed to do it. Um, and not not to be a better actor, um, although I'm hope I hope that it did make me a better actor, but because I needed to survive first and foremost, and I didn't have the tools for basic living in that deluded state. Um, and I, it was getting real. It was when that doctor said to me, "If you don't go back to acting, you're going to be ill for the rest of your life." He was basically saying to me, if you want to survive, do you want to survive? Thrive even. If you do, you're going to have to look yourself in the mirror and answer some really, really tough questions. And I did it. If you'd kept going at 22, 23, do you think you would have given up and not went back to it? Yeah. I, like if, I if you'd persevered, I, I don't know that I'd be alive. I mean, I, I know that's sort of melodramatic, but I think I was, I was headed in a direction of self delusion and bad behaviour in general. That I, I can't honestly say I would have made it. Um, so jumping forward again from then to now intervening years the industry's obviously changed a lot mm. and particularly on an accelerated course of change it seems at the moment in many ways um what are the things in the industry still that get your goat we've already covered one which is basic kind of respect that exists in other industries but not in ours um i guess you could pick that apart a bit more but what are the things that that really you think in our industry we need to get better at
it often seems to me that acting remains the sort of last piece of the last um model of of serfdom within within Christendom you know that it, it that it's antiquated there are many many practices which are antiquated and do not allow actors to really step into any kind of personal self uh, determination and I think there are structures around it the industry which make that the case um, I, I would very much prefer us to have a strong union which we do not have for for political reasons no I'm not blaming equity as an as an organization but for the power power sharing model that we have means that Actors Union does not have any power, certainly relative to, you know, SAG or something like that in America and the way it works for writers unions as well. I think without a union, it's very, very difficult to negotiate the kinds of terms and conditions which mean that we have a fairer uh, pay pay structures um, across the industry. I think that technology is affecting mental health within the industry, um, that it can be very, very difficult for actors to just have, you know, emails landing on Friday afternoons when the rest of the production is said, oh, phew, we got the script out, to land on an actor's desk and them have to wrangle with material for Monday morning when they may have family commitments childcare commitments, all sorts of other things that pile in at the weekend. Um, it's nobody seems, because technology has, rap, has made everything so rapid, it's, it, there is a lot that's lost, I think. There's not, there's not very much care about, you know, what, what is being sent out. You know, you might get things that aren't for you, for other people. You don't, you're very, it's very confused as you might arrive on set on a, on a Monday morning going, Sorry, was that? Oh, no, 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 that's the wrong draft or it was meant for another actor or, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, and I think that obviously the equality across the sort of um, gender, race, disability divides um, needs addressing, but that's not something an actor can do for themselves. They They have to... That has to be across, again, an industry-wide initiative. I think overtime is something. I mean, this is, again, what a union might deal with. But I had a job recently where I later discovered that it was, it was continuous days. Everything, everything was filming continuous days. I later discovered that there is a rule, apparently, equity have, that you can't work after eight hours. You have to have a break and stop um, after eight hours. Well, well, this job, we didn't have a break and stop for eight, uh, after eight hours. So I thought, oh, well, I can go back and claim overtime. So went back to claim overtime and it, it turned out, oh, in fact, this has all been bought out, bought out this overtime. This is a, this is a job over some you know considerable weeks. So I thought, at what point did I get asked whether I wanted my overtime bought out? At what point did that did a number get put on that overtime for that buyout? 
uh, numb. You know, it's it, we live in a kind of childish, excited state of, um, oh, I got the job. Gratitude, gratitude. And there are some really hard numbers in there, which we're not, are not transparent. They're not available to us. And I don't really see why that's the case or why it should be the case. So that would be my, I mean, in the absence of a strong union and the absence of the possibility of a strong union, I'm not sure how we address these things. But um, I certainly feel that we, you know, actors put up with vast amounts of disregard from an industry because there is no means by which to address it. Yeah. And if you query it, then that makes you the difficult one or the that's always the fear. And that's why you need a union to do it on your behalf. That's right. Um, okay. Um, last question. No, second last question. Um, an ultimate as my primary six teacher will be very pleased that I'm still using. Uh, do you worry more about your health, uh, work, career, or financial security? Which of those four do I worry, worry, well, worry work, most about? Career, flat career. So health, career, or financial security? Ooh. Well, in actuality, I used to, I think they shift around. Um, I definitely used to worry about financial security more than anything else. Um, I would have, you know, sleepless, sleepless, sleepless nights worrying about how to make ends meet. And um, it was an obsession. I worry about that less now because since I've had a couple of big jobs which have brought in, because just simply because of the numbers of weeks that you work, they brought in enough money to kind of meet some of the bigger, the bigger financial needs like paying down bits of mortgage and all of that kind of thing. I'm not as obsessed about it, but I nicely shifted onto health because um, after doing the first series of no offence, uh, which was utterly, utterly exhausting, five, five six months. Um, I got shingles in my eye um, and I was, oh, you know, obviously my immune system was completely fucked really and I, so I got shingles and I very nearly lost my eyesight on that side. And I still, this is three years ago or so, but I still have to go to Moorfields Hospital and um, have it checked out and stuff. It's still kind of consequences of that. And it made me realise, oh, okay, so you get the big job. I mean, I say the big job, the big money, the big amount of attention, the big amount of time. But the cost of that is how do you, well, in, in my case, was I did not know how to manage my energy. Physical resilience. Yeah, to match the emotional resilience you've built yeah. up over the years. And how do you how do you hold hold back? When do you hold back? What what do you give? When do you give it? Um, how do you make something as sustainable in an industry which isn't about sustainability? It's about short term gain. Doesn't care if it breaks you, if it gets what it wants. Yeah, and, it, and we've seen you know increasingly. I've heard. Well, we know there are productions that have happened, you know, recently where people have had to. Be, you know, they've had to recast because they've broken somebody. It, it, it happens. It's not, it's not no longer a kind of um, 
myth. It's it's a reality. And I look back and I, you know, when I read, I love reading actors' biographies and autobiographies. And you look back and you see how people used to manage, you know, eight shows a week in the in the West End, month on month on month, which, you know, is still going on. Um, and they'll talk about how they manage that. And I think the downtime in the past, the resting cliche um, was was better, was more restful than now. It's very, very hard yeah. to rest, to genuinely get the kind of balance between, putting, you know, there was an article in the paper yesterday. This is not just in our industry, and again, it relates to technology, but there was an article in the paper yesterday saying, you know, people who didn't have three weeks holiday a year had lost years off their life. This is in business. I mean, it is a real thing not to that rest and stress. Um yeah, that's genuinely a real thing. And actors, I think, traditionally used to know that, and that was sort of a big part of it. But now, when when that downtime has to be used by work, has to be used working in the in the restaurant or in the estate agents, as I used to do, or um, on another job or whatever, it's it's really, really, really hard to get that rest in. So now, I think my obsession has shifted to health. Put it that way. Um, the last question, which is a kind of a a cheeky question because it used to it's the gen, the genesis of the podcast was every time we meet someone who's an actor or not they say so are you anything at the minute or what are you doing at the moment or are you busy or and so that's where it came out of because I used to hate that question but I always feel like I have to ask it because it's pretty much how the podcast started and it's pretty much how every other actor interview in the world begins as a concept is well they're in this thing so I have to ask it are you in anything at the moment uh what do you mean am i about to do some work or is there something in the bank that's that's... why i love that question (laughs) because as actors i think we're obsessed with the notion of having just done something depending on how big it was up to a year ago i've just done a film uh or you're working at the minute yeah i'm just about to yeah uh the question is are you working at at the minute am i under contract currently yeah yes (laughs) <laughs> are you under contract currently is a less is it a less uh, kind of satisfying title for a podcast um, alright listen thanks very much it's been an absolute pleasure uh, it probably went on a lot longer than either of us anticipated but I was just engrossed I thought it was fascinating so you've had a as I expected you would have had a fascinating journey so thanks for sharing it yeah well thank you so much we were obviously separated at birth so uh, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps we'll have another cup of tea and talk about that yeah perhaps thank you so much thanks so that's that that's episode three out of the way sooner than you thought eh two days three episodes (sighs) looks like Christmas Episode 4 will be coming your way soon too, so keep an ear out for that. Make sure you're subscribed, otherwise you risk missing that episode, future episodes, and all of the great stuff that's coming your way. If you haven't already, please at this point consider, while you're still in the app, leaving a rating or a review for this podcast. It makes all the difference. If you're leaving the app, please do go and leave some comments on Twitter, hashtag Best of Honest Actors. You can get in touch via at Honest Actors on Twitter too. We're on Facebook. We're not on Instagram. I am. You can search me and you might find me. I don't care. Uh, That's it, really. That's the end of episode three. God, that came and went quickly, didn't it? Episode four coming soon. Until then, have a good Christmas. Speak soon. Hold up. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.